0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com/writingexcuses. Season 11, episode 43.
1: This is Running Excuses Drama Q&A with Tanana Reeve Dew.
0: Fifteen minutes
2: long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan.
1: I'm Howard. And we have special guest star Tanana Reeve Dew. Say hi. Hello, everybody. Can you tell us just briefly about yourself?
3: Well, I am an author. I'm a screenwriter. I've written about a dozen novels, either alone or in collaboration with my husband, Stephen Barnes. And I'm very excited to be here.
1: We are super excited to have you. We are on the Writing Excuses cruise. Yay. <laughs> And our wonderful writers here have given us some amazing questions, so we're going to jump into these. Uh, The first one comes from both Gamma and Clark. They both ask something very similar, which is, rather than having a protagonist change themselves, can the protagonist uh, be an impetus for change in others as a source of drama? Yes. Okay. Expand upon
2: that, Howard. (laughs) I... um well, we uh, last week we talked a little bit about the uh, about the James Bond stories and how Bond uh, so rarely changes. Um, but the things that he do, the things that he does, the things that the iconic superheroes do, James Bond, Superman, Conan the Barbarian. these folks don't change. The interesting stories are the people around them who are changing, often as a result of what these people are thundering around and doing. Uh, yeah, if, if you look at kind of the,
4: the old-style episodic TV shows, The Fugitive, uh, The Incredible Hulk, and I'm thinking like 70s era, but I'm sure there's modern ones as well. Um, you know, Bruce Banner never changed. He was the same character every week, but he was always prompt change in the people that he met and helped week after week.
0: Yeah, and usually this is one of those, that the ones that you will think about immediately are, are the, where the character feels... The, the secondary character has self-esteem issues and then they feel better about themselves by the end of the episode. Those, those are the classic and most easily represented ones. But another, another source of change is, you know, honestly, the bad guy. Uh, the bad guy thinks that they're at the top of the world and they go through a character change when they interact with the superhero, <laughs> which is now they are in jail Character sad. change
1: <laughs> via face punching. <laughs> <laughs> I would say most Westerns, Ah. And um, the Mad Max series is in its entirety yeah. are like this, where the main character is really not the main character.
0: Oh, you're right. Fury yeah. Road is mm-hmm. an excellent yeah. example of that.
1: Bill asks, what happens when a character refuses to learn and overcome their fatal flaw?
0: That's usually a tragedy. Yeah. Um, so when you're looking at something, it's, uh, when the, the, the basic question you're asking with character story is, can the character change? Can they be reconciled? Uh, with with their their identity Uh, can they they find an identity that they're happy with and you when you land at the end you're looking at either a positive or negative state and a positive state means that you answered yes and they can make a change and that is a happy ending and a negative state is no they cannot change and and the reason it's a tragedy is because they have failed at the thing they were trying to do
3: that was actually the word that popped into my mind you know tragedy because the reader can see the absolute necessity for the change and the characters around them can see the necessity for the change, but the lack of change creates a sense of tragedy. Would you yeah. say
1: that in many of those stories does it get worse? Is that kind of an, a hallmark of tragedy, or is it just they're at already the most absolute bad point and they just refuse to change?
4: I, I think either way yeah. Yeah. It, it can happen. And, and I want to give a word of warning. As someone who has written tragedies, and it can be very hard uh, to make it work because a modern audience is, is so conditioned for that happy ending. Um, and so writing a tragedy in which the character doesn't come out on top at the end can work and can be incredibly moving,
2: but you really have to sell it and you really have to do it right. The, the other aspect of this, if you're just bound and determined to write that happy ending, is that your tragic case is the case that mirrors the one that our protagonist is on and we are following the character arc of someone who fails to overcome the tragic flaw, and part of their point in the story is to show us the consequence set that awaits our hero if they fail.
0: Yeah. The other thing is um, that your subgenre, if you're doing a subgenre of drama, that can be a uh, you can have that be a happy ending. And you can have your primary driver be your tragic ending or the other way around. Um, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl does this. The 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 prime event genre, the, the, the main driver, um, is total failure and tragedy. But the character growth, she the, the where she winds up at the end, he manages to deliver a sense of a happy ending while in the middle of a complete tragedy
3: meltdown. I tried to do that in in my novel, My Soul to Keep, as I think about it. I have an immortal character who seems to want all the right things. He wants to stay with his family and his child. But in doing that, he's put them in great danger from his brothers who don't want their secret told. So really, he needs to step away. Mm. And he will not. He absolutely will not step away. And that is his tragic flaw, is his hubris and his selfishness. Mm.
1: So let's take this a slightly different direction. Mark asks... What are the lines between drama and melodrama? It's a really good question.
0: Music. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> well, True melodrama. <laughs> true <laughs> true, true melodrama here, winks at the audience. Like, <laughs> if you're going to the actual melodrama, melodrama, accidental melodrama, I think, is the the worry here. Not, you know, a real... The genre of melodrama is you wink at the audience, you overplay it, you overblow it, Uh, Pratchett would do this, it it is played for laughs, but how do you not do accidental melodrama? I think that's what the question is.
3: I see this a lot in students, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like we join our conflict already in progress. Uh, I don't know the characters, I don't understand the root of the conflicts between them and any time uh, the characters are speaking in exclamation points, and I'm still wondering, who are you exactly? <laughs> <laughs> that is a <What>? trauma. <laughs> what can you possibly mean? <laughs> you know, uh,
4: in the last episode, when Mary talked about uh, Saving Private Ryan made her cry without earning it, I, I, for me, that's really where the line is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. is, is this emotion earned or not? Do I actually believe it, do I care, or do I not? And so, how do, how do you find that line? You give it to a lot of other readers, you, you, know, you use a writing group, you use whatever, and make sure you can fine-tune that reaction so that it pulls off instead of misses the landing.
0: I think, I think the other thing is that melodramas are more likely to rely heavily on cliché and tropes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, so question. Um, Amy asks, do you have any tips for writing body language that reveals characters' internal state? which I really like. is kind of a subtle look at drama.
0: Uh, I have an entire class on that. <laughs> Does anyone mind if I just take this one? Go for it. Take okay. So in puppetry, what? Mary's going to talk about puppetry? <laughs> um, there are uh, three different basic types of movement, aggressive, passive, and regressive. Aggressive movement is anything that you want to engage with further. So anything that you lean in towards, you step towards, you turn towards. This is happiness, curiosity, um, certain types of anger. Passive is something you don't have strong feelings about. You stay more or less in the same spot. Regressive is anything you do not want to engage with. So uh, revulsion, fear, again, certain types of anger. And that's a movement away from. So a step back, a turn, a lean. So there's a difference between the, the training phrase, what did you say? What did you say? She leaned across the table. What did you say? She pushed back from the table. So this is a very simple piece of body language that, that we are used to doing, to, to reading all by ourselves normally. The other piece of body language, and, and again, it works just the same way on, on, on stage uh, as it does on paper, is um, open or closed silhouette. So arms crossed is, again, something you don't want to engage with. Cold, even though we're talking about a temperature, you, you don't want to engage with that. It's still a closed body movement. Uh, fear, often these will be closed open body language is arms out again things you want to engage with so you know um, hello she, she spread her arms hello she crossed her arms they, those are things that your readers will know how to, to interpret so that's one thing is the kind of body language you use and the other piece of that is your point of view character's interpretation of these things um, and, and their own emotional response to it will cue your readers okay That was me with my compressed thing. And as a very brief
2: aside, um, because I'm drawing the pictures all the time, (laughs) I regularly will cut from inset panel, inset panel, where we're just seeing faces, to a panel where I have moved the position of the characters without showing them walk around, because drawing people walking is really hard. Um, and, And their position and the open or closed posture, often it'll just be silhouettes, and I am signaling their emotional state with that tool.
3: One quick warning, I would say to writers, don't overuse those gestures, especially yeah. from the point of view character. It's mm-hmm. great if your point of view character is noticing gestures, but we don't, we're don't we not often aware of the gestures we're making. So the ear tugging and nose scratching and, and all those sorts of things sometimes serve as a substitute for their internal emotional process. Yeah. That would be better served by just saying what they're feeling or their stomach is cramping.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm in complete agreement with you. The, the metric that I use is that I'm looking for body language that removes ambiguity or that emphasizes something. But if I don't need to emphasize or remove ambiguity, I try to leave it out. Otherwise, it goes into what we call in puppetry, head-bobbing. <laughs> you know, I've seen
1: a lot in new students in my, uh, my class that a lot of students will want to modify every sentence of dialogue yes. with emotion. And it's made me really aware of how much I do this as mm-hmm. well, saying, you know, I think I do this too much. And, and the more my career has progressed, the more I've pulled back on some of these things.
0: Yeah, I, I'm very much the same way. And, and as I say, we, we call it head-bobbing in puppetry, where it's it's a puppet moves its head with every single syllable. Yep. Uh, and it drives us crazy. <laughs> Oddly, Brandon, the uh, example that I frequently use with my students when I'm talking about uh, movement that has become um, meaningless is uh, tug her Braid.
1: Right. Yeah, too much done, and it becomes, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. But we, we have to move on. We have to do... <laughs>
2: the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
1: Book of the week, because um, we have Tanana Reeve. You're going to tell us about Ghost Summer.
3: I have my first short story collection out. It just had a second printing, Ghost Summer. Yay! Thank you. And uh, it was tough to sell, so I'm I'm happy about how well it's done. And it's basically stories, some of them 15 years old, horror Primarily, uh, but some science fiction thrown in there, post-apocalyptic, and I'm very excited about it. And we have some uh, TV news about it, but I guess I can't share it yet. Oh. No. Ooh. But I'll tease you with it. And
1: they can find <laughs> that in good bookstores everywhere. Hopefully, I, yeah. yes,
3: or order it from your favorite <laughs> independent bookseller.
1: Excellent. Well, let's move on to um, two people ask a very interesting question, kind of related to something we talked about last week, which is when do you not show character growth? Is it sometimes good to have it not exist? Is there a reason not to add drama? Corey asks that.
3: In in a story where there are profound external events, a character's lack of change can become very significant in and of itself. Almost the point, especially in short fiction, I think it's a little easier uh, to get away with that, where it, it just shows how far gone the character is, how numb the character is, that a character isn't growing even though... They should be, you know, by, by all obvious uh, indications. I, I
4: think uh, another opportunity is to show contrast if you've got two characters. And the example that leapt to mind is the movie Rain Man, uh, which is about two brothers, one who kind of can't change and the other one who is forced to adapt in, uh, around him. And uh, that contrast between the two is actually really touching.
1: I would say that uh, I wrote a book my first published book, um, Elantris. One of my goals going into it was to write a character who didn't have a deep, dark, tragic past, which I really love to do. If you've read my other books, lots of deep, dark, deep, dark, tragic pasts. And I'm like, I just want a person that is more. All that's happening to them is external. It is a good person put on a, under a ton of pressure, and they weather it. And it was a really fun story to write. That character didn't really change. That character was the source of change to other people, and it was really appropriate for the story because of the terrible position they were put in. So I'd say that you can write stories like this that have a lot of drama around them with that, that
2: main character, and it doesn't have to be, like, a superhero, necessarily. Yeah, I would, I would categorize this as negative space. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a place where you haven't put a bunch of drama so that the things that are around it are more accentuated. Sherlock there are other things you want to say. Almost never changes. And he is wonderful as he
1: is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Steven asks, in writing a character that undergoes a great change that makes him or her radically different, how do you keep it realistic? This is very similar to um, another question which asks, um, a lot of ke- people in real life go the other, other direction. They make changes all the time. Like, they, we will make choices that um, are very seems very different from our schema. So how do you write these realistic transformations or characters realistically acting not according to who they're supposed to be?
0: I think it's the difference between who a character is perceived to be and who they are internally. Mm-hmm. One of the places that that a lot of, I think character conflict comes from is when a character's self-identity does not match, the assigned identity that that people give to them, and that's one of the things that that makes it feel like someone is making a hundred and eighty degree turn. They're probably not. It's just that their their internal consistency is not matching what you think they're going to do. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. funny that
2: Brandon brought up Schlock because uh, as of this recording, uh, he's undergoing a bit of an identity crisis, and there have been moments in which. He is offered a fancy weapon and the food he loves, come help us kill things, and he says, I just don't think I can. And the reason he says that is because he's had moments in which he's thought about the actual cost to other people of his actions, and I needed to demonstrate to the readers that when you have that experience, it puts a blockade in front of you and, and acting. That has a cost, and there was no character who could better sell that than Schlock, who we just expect to grab his guns and go start shooting, which is not, in this story, what he leads with.
4: You know, going the other direction, one of the the kinds of scenes that I love to write, almost more than anything else, is a moral compromise, Mm -hmm. where a character basically talks him or herself through a situation and then does the wrong thing because they've convinced themselves that it's the only way to go. And, you know, that what that really comes down to is, is a conflict between who a character really is and who a character thinks that they are. And they are forced, you know, and really hang a lantern on it. They're, they're forced to to finally justify, you know, which side of that line they're on.
3: I love that. And to piggyback on that, in writing horror, a lot of what I write mm-hmm. is about characters who don't realize that they're up to the challenge. First of all, they didn't even know there were demons. <laughs> but secondly, who thought you would be able to vanquish one? And it's, it's trying, you know, I'm trying to guide myself because we all have that heroism within us. Lord forbid if something were to happen on this ship, we would discover heroism in ourselves. We would save people. We would, you know, help people. Well. So, yeah, it's, it's, as long as you stick close, I, most of us would. I mean, I, yeah. I, I see a few of you who would jump ahead of people in the lifeboats, but... <laughs> oh, burn! Just kidding. Just kidding. Nah. But, it, but it's that moment where we realize who we really are and what, honestly, we are all capable of because we all do face those, those moments where we're forced to, to be heroes and heroines.
1: I think we're going to call it there. I really want to thank to Nana Reeve for coming on oh, with us. Oh, my pleasure. Us. Thank you. And I want to thank our audience. Yeah.
2: Howard has some homework for you. I do. Um, the name for this is If I Only Had a Brain. Uh, we're going to be starting Issue uh, with our, our next month of uh, Elemental Genre. We're talking the, the Issue Elemental Genre. And what I want you to avoid is the straw man. Take the issue that you are planning on writing about, or take an issue about which you are passionate. Identify both sides. Identify which side you are on. Then take the other side and write it convincingly. Put a brain in the straw man. In fact, go ahead and put meat and bone and all of the other body bits on the straw man and turn this into a person because actual people... Hold the position that you abhor or disagree with, and they are actual people. And once you can do that, once you can write both sides convincingly, we will believe your book. Excellent. This has been Writing Excuses.
1: You're out of excuses. Now go write.
0: Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson.